12-hour mission, 10 hours in contact, being surrounded 360 degrees, but at all stages knowing that you had the firepower. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anything to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no one And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. And so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Australian Army veteran Scott Calvert spoke to Sharon Maskell-Dare about the Artillery Corps, his Middle East deployments, action in Afghanistan, and the cost life in uniform can have on life back home. I'm Sharon Maskell-Dare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In this episode, I'm joined by Major Scott Calvert, who served in the Australian Army for 20 years and has had deployments twice to Afghanistan in 2009 and 2013. Today, he's the Brigade Major at Headquarters 9th Brigade in South Australia. Scott, welcome to Life on the Line. Good morning, Sharon. Tell us about your journey and and how it started. When did you first decide you wanted to wear the green and join the Army? As a young child, I just vividly remember watching troops getting on board ships for the Falklands War. My father always wanted to serve in the Army, but with my grandfather's experiences in the Second World War, my nana was just never going to sign up for him to actually serve. So he always watched military documentaries and what have you on TV. So watching the paras uh, basically go up Goose Green and secure that piece of ground and just watching the soldiers, that was it for me. That's what I wanted to do. It's interesting because I grew up in the UK and have similar memories of seeing that on TV and it really was quite powerful, wasn't it, at the time? It had a huge influence on a generation. It did and then growing up in the 80s and then it was Reagan's nuclear proliferation and seeing, you know, the nuclear missiles and just growing up in that environment where you're watching behind the news. So it was always there in the background and then I saw the Exocet missile going to the Sheffield and that, that was it. I, I just... I don't think I could ever get enough of learning more about the military and just wanted to be a part of it. It just took a while. So you joined up at the age of 18? No, so I, was, I wasn't particularly encouraged to join the army by my family. They had some reservations about how I'd cope with basic training and that kind of thing. So it wasn't until a friend's father who was an army reserve armoured corps officer said, go and give it a shot. So at the age of 23, I was a bit of the grandfather of the platoon when I went in and started officer training. And um, so I was a bit older, a bit wiser, but some of the, the, old, the younger guys didn't like the fact that I was trying to jam up and get them to do things that they didn't necessarily want to do. Now, today you're currently posted to an Army Reserve Brigade, which is 9th Brigade here in South Australia. But tell us a bit about what the Army Reserve was like at that time when you first joined as a reservist. It was really good because there was a a group of about 15 of us that started training together and we all graduated from RMC together as well. So a great peer group of friends to go through. Out of that group, there was about three or four of us that ended up transferring into the regular army and the rest of them, the brigade was humming at that stage. It was really busy. There was a lot of activities and a lot of combined arms training activities. So we've certainly got our fill. 
The other good thing was it was during the um, the One Army concept, so I got to do a lot of regular army courses and then had a peer group of regular army guys that I'd been on course with and every course I went to the School of Artillery for, it was like, what are you doing? Why are you working in the public service and why aren't you in the regular army? So the words stuck eventually and again, it just took a bit of time. So you mentioned there artillery, which became your core. So, so what was it about artillery that had such an attraction for you? Again, understanding what a forward observer did. So to be actually in an observation post, to be calling in artillery, to watch helicopters flying around your head, to have fast jets with 500 and 2,000 pound bombs. It's just an amazing responsibility to work in a small team of four or five people, to live together, to sleep together, uh, to do everything together for weeks and months on end. Tight team, a lot of responsibility and uh, a lot of firepower, not in your hands, but at your fingertips using a radio. So it was pretty awesome. So a combination then of the mateship, but also that kind of high paced, exciting atmosphere from how you describe it. Again, as an artillery officer, your scope of responsibility is pretty huge. You're young, you're not necessarily that experienced, but you think you are. It is tempered by having a few pretty solid heads around you as well giving you, again, a push in the right direction. So really thankful for having some commanders that did have that experience and could actually pass it on to you as well. Given that you were so young, how did you deal then with that sense of responsibility? I mean, you talk about the responsibility of calling in artillery fire, having to coordinate. That must have been a lot to learn for such a, a young person. It is a lot to learn, but you put your faith and your trust in the army system. So every step of the way through officer training and then through your regimental officer's basic course, you had wiser heads every time. So you were never left dangling. You're always put under pressure. You're always expected to learn very quickly and your learning curve was always very steep as it is in the army. But again, you, you always get the tools and then they build you up with the experience. And then once they know that you're good enough, then they let you loose. If you don't come up the standard, then you know they might move you on into another position. Now, it was around that time that you met the lady who's now your wife, Megan. Tell us a bit about that and how she felt about your ambitions to remain in the Australian Army. Yeah, I don't think she knew that I was going to do it for the rest of my career. We met at a radio station competition for SAFM, as it was back then, and pretty much a month later, we were living together, and three months after that, we got engaged. So I think we were all loved up, and you know, the future really didn't matter, and we were just happy to be together, but... As time went on, I did uh, a continuous full-time service contract at Adelaide University's regiment as their training officer. My daughter at that stage was only two years old and really had thoughts then that I was going to transfer into the regular army. But I was thinking about, well, if we've got one, we better have another one. I wanted to be, make sure I was going to be around for the birth and knowing what it's like and the amount of time that you spend away. We decided that we'd kind of put that plan on hold and have another child and then William was born and I was offered a deployment to go to the Middle East to do a UN observer posting. It was 12 months and decided that would let that one go. And I said, well, if I join the regular army instead, it would be much better, which I did. And then ended up deploying for 14 months on my first tour. So I think she, was, she wasn't aware of the master plan. <laughs> so 14 months, that's not insignificant, particularly when you've got a wife, you've got a couple of young children. Just talk us through perhaps some of the decision making that went into that as a family to decide that you would commit that level of time. So I transferred into the regular army for the one sole reason of deploying. That is what I wanted to do. And I was adamant that given the opportunity, I'd take it. 
we moved from Adelaide up to Darwin, spent a year in Darwin. Well, Megan did with the kids, but I was pretty much away constantly for the year on exercises and training courses. So when the opportunity to deploy the British Army on Operation Herrick in role with the gunners, employing the guns, it was a job that was too good to not go on. It did mean that I was leaving behind a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And the seven months in the UK was awesome. The training that we had over there was incredible. It was detailed and a very a good run into deploying into Helmand Province. So in the end, I was home for four weeks in 14 months. Megan coped with it. I did, and as I say, took a mortgage out on the relationship, which I'm still paying back. Really, that tour for me was one of the key highlights of my career. Being able to deploy on operations in an artillery role with a British battle group was um, amazing. Tell us a bit more about that then in terms of the differences that you then encountered by being attached to the British Army as opposed to the Australian Army. Were there cultural differences? Did they go about things in a different way? It was a natural fit. We've been on operations and gone through two world wars with them. Very different characteristics of the two armies, but work exceptionally well together. I couldn't have asked for a better regiment to have deployed with, with the 1st Regiment Royal Horse Artillery. They loved us. The feeling was mutual. It sounds a bit sad, but the Gunners had an exceptional time in the UK. They worked hard, they played hard, and I'm sure they got kicked out of more nightclubs than I know about. I found a few stories quite entertaining, but that was at least three years after the tour had ended, found these things out. But um, working with the Brits was awesome. Professional, excellent equipment, and they did everything that they possibly could to make sure that we were well prepared to go overseas. And in some respects, I think the soldiers that we took over there, being the best soldiers from 812 Medium Regiment, they really outshone the British gunners and really led the way. So take us through what the situation was in Afghanistan at that time and, and why you were there on operations. We deployed in 2009-10, which was just at the beginning of the surge into Afghanistan. And I initially went in working out of Kandahar with the three Scots as the ready battle group. So what they were charged with doing was aviation assault operations, predominantly in Helmand province, but also in Kandahar province. So they were discrete activities anywhere from 24 hours out to seven days uh, with specific mission sets. After they went back to the UK, the Royal Welsh Battle Group, whom I did all my training with, they came out around Christmas time. And then we started doing um, the preliminary operations before Operation Mostrak, which was the US Marine Corps entering into Marjar and clearing Marjar and the British, we predominantly went into Natty Alley. So that culminated in a 1,300-man aviation assault in February 2010. And so my part in that was planning the offensive support, so organising the artillery support, organising close attack helicopters, close attack fast jets, as well as armed unmanned aerial vehicles as well. So battle space management, airspace management, and then tying in with the Marines so we could use their offensive support. So they had artillery guns and they had rockets as well that were available to us. And what was the effect then of what you were trying to achieve? I mean, in terms of the war at that time and the fight against the Taliban, what did you see happen as a result of, of what you were contributing? So Mostarak was a watershed at that stage in Helmand Province where we were clearing into areas that had a high Taliban component. 
what we were trying to do is bring back some kind of normalcy into those smaller townships, very rural, very basic townships. But really what we were about was enforcing the rule of law with the army and with the Afghan police force. So it was all partnered operations as well. So as a part of that 1,300-man aviation assault, there was a Kandak, Afghan Kandak, which was mentored by the French. The French were very interesting to work with. Their accents on a radio, amazing. Yeah, so enforcing the rule of law, clearing those areas and allowing the, um, the Afghans to actually have some kind of way of life where their markets reopened. And it was interesting because every tour had their one major operation, Ours being Mosharak and going into those areas, Gordon Brown, who was then the UK Prime Minister, he got himself out on the ground. We had other visitors. So the Australian gun detachments in Helmand Province, they were visited by Mary, the Princess of Denmark, which was interesting for those guys. I think over the period of that tour, you could actually see that the changes in the areas where we were, so security increases markets reopened and people going about their daily lives. So only being a seven-month tour, that was only one small cog in what ostensibly has been 15, 20 years of coalition forces in Afghanistan. So what are your memories in that time of your interactions with any of the local people? Did you get a sense from people on the ground that you were making a difference to their situation? For me, my tour was definitely more about supporting the combat soldiers and working more in a command post or a operations room rather than actually being out on the ground. To be honest, what we were doing in the initial stages was going out and finding Taliban and clearing the enemy from those areas. So I can't say that I was interacting with the locals in a, in a positive way. We were actually trying to find the enemy and then remove him from those positions. I was lucky enough to go on one aviation assault operation. If it was up to me, I would have gone on all of them, uh, but I was only given the opportunity to go on one. So that was for a 12-hour mission, 10 hours in contact, being surrounded 360 degrees, but at all stages knowing that you had the firepower if you needed it and the assets at hand to deal with any situation. Did you feel in danger at any time? Was that part of your experience? It's funny where I can only talk about my own experience. Vividly remember getting out of the back of a CH-47 and there was crack thumps going over the top of my head and I, I turned to my mate Ben and just said, we're getting shot at, aren't we? And he just looked at me and he just went, yeah. And he was just so calm and relaxed about it. You know, that it certainly wasn't the first time he'd been in contact. It was my first time in contact and it was his assurance there was nothing said it was just looking at ben going we'd spent the last seven months together and he was like yeah it's okay and so we just cracked on and did the job moving between compounds was interesting because you're trying to move fast you know you're getting shot at but you also know that there's apaches in the overhead looking down on you as well and i just remember turning to my left and i saw a cow in a stable and it's just chewing on grass and I'm in full body armor helmet running and I hard to breathe and I'm just looking at this cow and it's just watching me and just went past and it was the most surreal thing so I wish I'd taken a picture of the cow but that would have defined I think my experiences on that day. Given you were away so long how did you maintain contact then with your family and, and how much were you able to share with your family about what was going on for you? I didn't share anything with what I was doing I left that until I got, well, long after I got home, to be honest, when I started going through some of the photographs. We had access to telephones. There was internet connectivity as well. So it wasn't too hard to maintain contact with home. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, in my instance, it wasn't necessarily great because 
in some ways, if you have a regular schedule where you only speak to each other once a week, it's better because that way you can just focus on the, the task at hand. That way that your family is not worried if you don't ring them on a particular day that something may have happened. There was nothing I could do if there were issues at home and there were a number of issues at home. And the cricket bat that I bought at Lord's for my son, size one cricket bat, he's three years old and the first thing he does with it is break his sister's nose because he he wasn't happy with her one day and he just took a swing so his big sister copped one right in the nose so when Megan told me that story over the phone I just laughed and then she broke down crying so my experiences like I was very focused on the task overseas and unfortunately Megan had just everything else to deal with. So when you got home what was life like in terms of that integration after your first deployment? When we left the UK, the Icelandic volcano had erupted. So we were due on a Qantas flight to get out on whatever day it was. We were delayed by about a a week before we could get home. So Megan had come over to the UK for the medals parade and what have you. So I managed to get on the first flight out of London and Megan was still in the UK. Her parents who had the kids, they were going away. So I had to get home. It was the day before Anzac Day, 2010. Got home, grabbed the kids and then started packing up the house and moving. I had a day in Darwin, then about four or five days in Adelaide to pack up the house. And then by that stage, Megan had got home, the moving trucks had been loaded, and then we were in a car driving to Brisbane. So my holiday between coming off 14 months was to drive to Brisbane with two young kids that I hadn't seen for a while. They didn't miss a beat. They, they knew we maintained enough contact. They knew exactly who I was, which was nice. And they were great. The kids were great. I was preoccupied with trying to adjust to some sense of normalcy after having spent seven months in Afghan. That was really hard. And I I didn't actually understand how hard it was until we moved. We're only in Brisbane for 18 months and then moved to Townsville after that. And it wasn't until I got to Townsville that I realised that I almost lost my children and my marriage because I was just in a, a rubbish state after having been away for so long. I think it's really more an adjustment disorder rather than anything else. I had no issues from the deployment and work was normal. Being in Afghanistan and doing what I was doing was normal. What wasn't normal was being a husband and a father and that took quite a while to to get back into. So how did you make that adjustment? Because this is a common theme that we hear about in this podcast series, Life on the Line. We often hear that it's the coming home that can be the hardest thing for people to, to experience. I was told that I had to go to VVCS or else when we were in Brisbane. I gave it a go. It didn't work. And the job that I was doing in Brisbane wasn't particularly ideal for a guy that's just come out of Afghanistan, was really keyed up from those experiences and really had a lot to offer in a combat brigade and pass on those experiences to other people. So it wasn't until I got to Townsville and uh, moved to 4 Regiment um, Royal, Royal Australian Artillery that I actually felt as though I had a sense where as a battery commander up there that I could influence training, I could talk to people about those experiences and pass some of those things on. And it was the ability to talk to people about what I had done, how that then influenced the way that I would train my forward observers and the rest of my team as well. But I also learned a lot from the guys that I was working with because I had a couple of combat veterans in my battery as well. And they were also struggling with their experiences to combat and one in particular who did have PTSD. And again, to this day, he, to me, is a shining light where he had an issue. He sought help, had to go on medication. Therefore, he was medically downgraded for a period of time. But he had the strength of character in a very manly 
and gruff regiment and he stood up and said i've got an issue i'm dealing with it he didn't make a secret of it at all and to this day rob amazing guy just three years later after you returned from afghanistan you went back again so how did that go down with your family when you had to tell megan and the children look i'm gonna go back there Megan was okay with it. My parents, they weren't particularly happy about it. Their thoughts were, you've done what you wanted to do and you've served. Whereas for me, it was, again, it was professional education to go over there again. Uh, It was a reward for getting beasted in three brigade for another, I think it was two years at that stage. Worked exceptionally hard training people in their functions as artillerymen, as forward observers and working in command posts. And for me, it was a reward for two years of really hard work and something again where, look, to this day, if, if I was asked to go to Afghanistan tomorrow, I'd go, no hesitation whatsoever. That's what we're here for. That's what you train for. And, and that's what, what I want to do. I am very lucky where my experiences in Afghanistan haven't defined me as a person. I was lucky where they always talk about experiences may vary. So if you're in a command post or in your, if you're in a major base or you're walking around the boardwalk in Kandahar, it's completely different to being in a forward operating base where you're getting shot at over the wall day in, day out. You're living on hard rations day in, day out. And to a degree, I would like to have experienced that. I would rather go out and do that and do it hard and be a part of that experience with a group of people where the person that you're standing next to is the person you're putting your life on the line for. You're asked to do a job regardless of what that job is, whether it's in a forward operating base or in a comfortable command post working 18 hour days, regardless of what you're asked to do, you just do the best you can. So for me to go back to headquarters ISAF and work on the Afghan elections was just another opportunity where I could use my training skills and also gain from the experience as well. So I was really, really keen to go back over again. How did the situation then differ with that second deployment compared to the first, where had the war in Afghanistan got to when you returned? So by the time I got back in 2013, NATO operations were contracting. So my first tour, I was there during the surge. There was, my brigade had swelled to almost 10,000 soldiers. Going back in 2013, the security situation was much better. The boundaries were changing. The number of troops was downsizing. And what the difference for this tour for me was it wasn't a combat tour. It was working in a headquarters. It was providing security and logistic advice to the Afghans to run their own presidential and provincial council elections. So we were trying, we were using the assets of NATO to make sure that they could have free and fair elections, provide those security conditions where the average person could go out and vote. So they had a say in their future. We were enabling the Afghan National Army, we're enabling their police forces, we're enabling their ministries to do what they needed to do, and the Independent Election Commission could actually conduct an election. So pretty tough in a country of that size, with that geography, with the ongoing conflict. And your role specifically, how did you plug in to facilitating those elections? So I worked in a small cell in headquarters ISAF at the strategic level. I worked for a British One Star who was without a doubt, one of the most gifted, professional and personable people I've ever met. He was an ex-CEO of the Gurkhas. He loved talking to anyone in Nepalese. He was just the most engaging person. So he would go out and he would talk with the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Defence. He would find out how NATO could best use their resources to assist in a free and fair election. And then we would then talk to the operational arm within 
NATO to then use our assets to improve the security situation, to strategically message about security in the country, and also then use our logistics chain to make sure that we could get ballots from Kabul out to the rest of the country at every stage of the way. So that was from aircraft to move ballots out to distribution points, then using NATO vehicles, and then the Afghans putting boxes on the back of donkeys and then taking them up through the mountains and getting them to polling stations. So every step of the way that we were working with the Afghans to enable them to conduct their own election. You must feel a sense of pride and, and achievement with regard to your contribution then, because clearly those elections did take place and you did have a role. Time's an amazing thing. And I've never, you asked the question, but I've never thought of it in that way before. I look at what I've done in the army for 20 years and I'm still in awe of other people that in my eyes have achieved so much more. So I am just one small cog in a very large machine. I don't see anything that I've done as being special. And I just look around at the people I've worked with for the last 20 years, both regular army and reserve. And I generally see just professional people that just quietly want to go about their job, which is why doing this is, is difficult. I like to draw attention to the fact that while we serve, it's our families that make the sacrifice. And in order for us to do what we, or what I've done anyway, over the last 20 years, there's a family that sits behind it. There's a mother and father that's not too impressed that I keep putting my hand up to go overseas because that's what I want to do. But I've got two children and I'm looking at after a 20 year career transitioning back to the Army Reserve. And I've got an 11 year old son that is dead against the idea because he's only ever known me in the regular army. He loves it, he lives and breathes it. He spent that much time in Townsville and the garrison using the swimming pool and the obstacle course and going in the vehicles and going on family days where he sees artillery pieces fire. He's been in helicopters, he's been in tanks. And for the family, it's been a real, it's not a job, it's a life. And, and you drag everyone else along for the ride, for better or for worse. Do you think your son's gonna join the army? We had this conversation last week and if he chooses to do so, then that's up to him, but Megan's not that impressed. Tell us then a bit more about what you're doing now, because obviously you came back from Afghanistan, you're currently posted to Headquarters 9th Brigade, you're now looking to transition to the Army Reserve from full-time service. So where are things at right now for you and your family? We left Townsville, decided to come back to Adelaide. Part of that was the payback for two tours and being away constantly to get back to Adelaide, to get back to family and some stability. My daughter, she's in, when we got back to Adelaide, she went into year seven and that was in school number six. So she has become quite robust on the outside, but she's still she's still a, a young woman that's trying to find a place in the world at the moment. So she's got all of those experiences, which are positive things. She needs that stability now to go through secondary school. Coming back to Nine Brigade was coming home. To be able to be a part of the regular staff, to go through the force gen cycle to within six months of taking up the posting of brigade major, put 752 army reservists on a high intensity war fighting activity with one brigade at Coltana, again, in my own backyard, was pretty special. So things have changed a lot. The operational focus of the second division and nine brigade and four brigade, our partner brigade, is very much about providing support to one Brigade being our, our partner Combat Brigade and actually having an operational focus. So the opportunities now for Army Reservists to go through a force gen cycle, to work hand in glove with the regular Army and then have opportunities to deploy, be it on border protection operations, 
go overseas and go to uh, Malaysia for rifle company Butterworth. And there are also opportunities in Iraq and Afghanistan for reservists to go and deploy to. So back when I started, I was chasing tours to Iraq with 16 air defence regiments. I was chasing anything I could. But the best way I thought to actually put my money where my mouth was was join the regular army, live the dream and all the experiences that go with it and deploy that way. So the good thing is now as an army reservist is you do actually have those opportunities available to you without necessarily committing to a a longer term in the regular army. What was it like, though, coming home? I mean, you talked about coming back here to South Australia, returning back to Nine Brigade, where you started out as a reservist 20 years ago. But what was it like coming back effectively to your hometown and rebuilding a life here? It wasn't so much rebuilding a life. It was taking the experiences that we'd had from moving around for 10 years and coming back to Adelaide. And we have, previous to this, you live in a garrison town, all your friends are military one way or another, and, and you don't ever really escape your career, all your friends' army. You go to the shopping centre in Townsville, you, you see people you know, you see groups of guys, groups of soldiers in PT gear, and William was only probably eight or nine, and go, Dad, there's army soldiers over there, you can't miss them because they're six foot tall, built like the proverbial, and short, sharp haircuts and and what have you. So to come back to Adelaide to be surrounded by what I call normal people is an experience. Going down to Edwardstown Footy Club and seeing the same guys year in, year out now who actually look at when you do talk about some of the things I have done, they actually see it as something not being normal as opposed to what I understand and with all my friends, military friends, that's just the norm. So having Edwardstown Footy Club, uh, Goodwood Cricket Club and Adelaide Cricket Club You just keep meeting the same people. You have a social group of friends. And I do actually, for the first time since coming back from Afghanistan in 2010, I actually feel relatively normal again. So it is quite a journey. I did give VBCS another go and have been going there for the last six months and making best use of some of their services as well. So look, I highly recommend if you've got those adjustment issues, VBCS definitely can help. If it doesn't work the first time, then keep trying. You'll find someone that you can talk to. So that's been really helpful. So my transition out of the regular army, it's not quite complete yet, but those steps have been taken and I feel a lot more ready to be able to transfer back into the reserves. And going back into the reserves, again, real passion for being able to share those experiences, train other people and assist the next generation of soldiers and officers coming through. Certainly earlier this year, I mean, you organised the Anzac Day commemoration service here in Edwardstown. You've become quite a community figure. Edwardstown Footy Club is a very strong community-based but also family-based organisation. Both my kids now play footy at Edwardstown. And the next step of that with the redevelopment of the Memorial Gardens and Edwardstown Football Club with their club rooms is that they do an Anzac Day every year. Last year, I went when it was run by the RSL, they didn't actually have anyone there in uniform. And I just saw it as an opportunity that if there is something that I know about, I've I've been to a few dawn services over the years, quite a lot. So you know what right looks like. To be able to then assist the RSL and conduct the dawn service was great because you do it for the community. People understand, sorry, they don't understand necessarily what the Australian Army is doing now. So to be able to have respect for the past and then respect for the current serving military personnel, whether they've served overseas or not, at least you're another point of contact that can get into the community and talk to people about your experiences so that then more people in the the community understand what's going on. 
So moving forward, what do you think is possible in terms of educating the community about the needs of families? The Australian Defence Force has formal networks through defence community organisations through the National Welfare Coordination Centre. They're all in place and they provide great opportunities for families to get involved in organised activities. What I see as key is the informal networks that you do have within the community. And I've seen it in Townsville where the schools get involved, where there are so geckos on base which draws families in. The units or the regiments and the battalions get together and do family days, get people to interact. So what I've done since being back in Adelaide, I've gone to both. So my daughter goes to Cabra Dominican College in Westbourne Park. William goes to Westbourne Park Primary School. So I've gone into both schools and on Remembrance Day, but also just talking about being in the Army, showing them the kit that we use and then let kids try on the body armour and see how heavy it is and things like that. To broadly educate the children so they understand the experiences my kids have have moving around. More broadly in the community, just being a part of the community and I would really advocate, as we did in Townsville and back in Adelaide, if you can get out to sporting clubs, community organisations, being part of the community, that's, I think, informally is the best way that we can go about that because it's easier in garrison towns because they're so used to seeing soldiers, sailors and airmen in uniform around the shops and just being a part of the normal community. Down in Adelaide, slightly different where predominantly you have Defence Force members in the northern part of Adelaide out at RAF Edinburgh. But as I say, anywhere Defence members can have those informal networks, that will increase the understanding of what serving members what they do day to day, what they experience when they go overseas and just take those opportunities to talk to people about it. Scott Calvert, thank you very much for joining us. You've had an incredible career, only halfway through your career. You've got so much more ahead of you. But thank you so much for telling us about your experiences in Afghanistan and also just your your openness about your family. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks very much for your time. This is Sharon Maskeldare for Life on the Line. For more stories of Australians at war, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Subscribe in your podcast app and sign up for our e-newsletter at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. If you're just discovering us, go and check out our past veteran conversations. Sharon's Chat with Scott is our 80th podcast. We've got 79 other great episodes for you to check out. Also join the conversation on social media. We're at LOTLPod on Twitter and at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Make sure you follow us. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs> <laughs>